I have a few announcements, and then we'll dismiss uh, the children to children's church. Um, I don't have very many announcements. There is a, uh, is that turquoise? I think that's turquoise. Um, Flyer about our uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, picnic, and uh, just go ahead and put that on your schedule. Next Sunday is Youth Sunday, so that's always a uh, a unique service. Um, but it'll be good. It'll be good. Encourage you to come out and uh, have opportunity for uh, uh, our teens and uh, some of the youth in the church to lead worship, and uh, so it's a learning experience for us and. Uh, for them, and, and it will be for us as well. The uh, Still looking for a couple teachers, particularly looking for one woman to help with our fifth grade class. Did I get that right, Margaret? Yes. Fifth grade, that's the, the big hole we need to fill right now, but it's coming together, and you've got plenty of other announcements uh, there to uh, check that out. Just let our younger children go to children's church now, and uh, have the rest of you get out your um, message outline. In the very end of John, we are there. Finally, we have made it. Turn with me to the very end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, the last six verses of the Gospel of John. Hard to believe we've gotten to the end so quickly, but we are there. And for those who are wondering, we're going to do, take uh, two, three weeks and do a couple different things, and then... uh, uh, in June, we will start with First, Second, and Third John, and that'll take us uh, through the summer and into the into the fall. So, still have much to learn from John. The uh, turn in the passage uh, with me, if you have your Bibles, John twenty-one verse twenty. Uh, otherwise, read along in the uh, uh, sermon outline. Listen carefully. This is the the last thing we have in this gospel. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, What is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we have come to the closing verses of this gospel, and yet we still have much to learn. So I pray this morning that we would be attentive to your word, that by your spirit you would speak to us, and that your word would become part of our life and our thinking and our words. We ask that you would do this for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the 79th and hopefully last sermon in this series on the Gospel of John. I began preaching through John on September 10th, 2006, some 20 months ago. And I started it by pointing out some key things I thought we needed to learn from John. And I asked you then, as I'm sure you will all remember, uh, to imagine with me a football team playing every game on its home field. Since home teams win between 60 to 80% of their home games, this team would have a tremendous advantage. It would have winning seasons year after year after year. And I said that from approximately A.D. 300 to approximately A.D. 1300, the church operated like the home team. They acted like they had home field advantage. The church owned the teams, chose the sides, made the rules, taught the refs, always had the crowd behind it, or at least it thought it did. And while it's not entirely true, as soon as you broaden your perspective to include Africa and Asia, it's obviously not true. But even in Europe, there were uh, pagans and heresies behind every tree, and the church dealt with them in incredibly compassionate ways, alternating with harsh persecutions that boggle the mind. But they thought they were the home team. And for the most part, so did everyone else. But that started to fall apart with the Reformation. It completely crumbled with the Enlightenment, was banned from the field in modernity, and is now a distant memory lost in postmodernism. And today, everything has changed. Today, we play on the opposing team's turf. Now, those who would just as soon have nothing to do with the church are the ones making the rules for our society. They're the ones who own the teams, make the rules, provide the refs, and the crowd is behind them. And they find the church authoritarian, and they find Christians antagonistic, and they find Christianity unbelievable, and Jesus Christ meaningless. Not sure? Does that sound a bit extreme? Well, consider that there's a higher percentage of active professing Christians in Angola, West Africa, than there is in America. There's a higher percentage of Christians in Korea than there is in Canada. There's a higher percentage of Christians in Fiji than in any country of Europe. The largest mission field in the Western Hemisphere is the United States. And the darkest mission field in the world is easily Western Europe. Even more so, I believe, than the Muslim world. And if the church is going to carry out its mission of telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to know what we're up against and how the rules of the game are changing. We must know why the church is a community, and then we have to be a community. We must know why Christians are loving and then be loving people. 
We must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really do believe it. And we must know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings meaning to each one of our lives, and we must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and is coming again. And we must be able to tell other people in a way that they can understand. That is the purpose of the Gospel of John. Key verse, the theme of this book is found in John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John was written. That's what we've been learning for 20 months. I also told you back when we started that the book of John is somewhat like a film. With chapter 1 is the opening titles, the musical theme, and that gives you the history of the uh, uh, prior to the story in the film. Then we have chapters 2 through 20, which are various angles or shots that the camera captures. It's edited by John to focus every shot, every uh, angle, uh, every event, every sign, every saying to reveal Jesus as the author of the story. And then chapter 21 is the closing credits and the music of the film, and that's where we are now. To understand the book, you have to see the big picture. John's writing a story to all the world, to the church, and to you, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's a story that we have here that only John can write. The Apostle John was an old man. It's now A.D. 90, give or take a few years, when he's writing He is the last of the apostles left alive. There's a community of seven churches that he pastors situated along a a postal road in what we now know as uh, Western Turkey. And they stand in awe of him. He's called John the Elder. An elder as much as a, a description as a title. He's at least over 80 years old. In a world, uh, think back to the first century, you know, 40 was getting along, and 60 was ancient, and 80 was miraculous, and John is over 80. And he was a simple man from a simple place. But what happened to him was not at all simple. Perhaps it was. He was a follower, a disciple, someone Jesus loved, someone he trusted. With his own hands, John has touched him, and those now tired old eyes had looked in the mystery of Jesus' fine intellectual face. And John had been asking himself all these years now, what did it mean? What does he mean? And at this time in the history of the church, things are getting confusing. People are starting to question what Jesus uh, said, what Jesus did, who Jesus was. And there's only one apostle left, John. All the other apostles were gone. All the other key members of the first church in Jerusalem are gone. Peter and Paul have been martyred for some 25 years now. All the rest of the New Testament has been written except for John's books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. But the people are there, and at this point they've got nothing from John. 
And to stand in the presence of the last living disciple was to realize he needed to commit to writing as much as he knew before his lips were silenced forever. And he wrote because they wouldn't leave him alone until he did. And he wrote because he wouldn't leave him alone until he did. And he wrote because he missed the sound of Jesus' voice so much sometimes he thought his heart would break. Perhaps he wrote uh, with the hope that through the words of Jesus, uh, just maybe one of his sentences, he might hear again that familiar sound of his voice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been uh, long written and well circulated. Everyone knew uh, the stories they contained by heart. And John set out to fill in the gaps. He thoughtfully skipped the well-known stories so he could substitute other stories that no one had ever heard and stories that had never been written down, stories that he'd been telling and preaching for some 60 years now. And these stories came together by themes, as good sermons do, light and darkness, wisdom and foolishness, the misunderstood Messiah. Writing them down, working through them again in his, his imagination is almost like being back on the road again with Jesus. Details come to mind. John is full of hundreds and hundreds of details. He thought were long lost, tired feet from a long journey, fear of the Pharisees, the feeling of having his breath taken away by those luminous words of Jesus of Nazareth. He remembered how again and again the people had misunderstood Jesus' words and his works and how after he would make the most deeply spiritual pronouncement, the crowd would often completely miss the meaning. He would talk about living water and they would see a well. And he would speak about bread from heaven and they would want a meal. And the essence of John's portrait of Jesus is found in its simplicity talks about light, water, bread, seed. And Jesus is revealed through the immediate and the tangible. And I imagine that John would occasionally have to push himself back from the writing table to wipe away the tears that were brought on by the memories that forced him once again into the presence of the Galilean that he loved and longed for and missed with all his heart. And here they are. For the last 20 months, we have read and heard the words, the thoughts, the feelings of the last living disciple, the last person alive who walked with Jesus. And so the question is, have we heard them well? Have we heard them well? 20 months ago, I invited you to come sit at the feet of John the Elder, Listen to what he had to say about this Lord of his, this friend that he leaned against at their last meal together and who he's been leaning on ever since, the one John would have all of us lean on. The one he writes to tell us is Christ the Lord. This is probably the most relational book in the Bible because John writes not of doctrine but of how Jesus related to people. He remembers a wedding where Jesus solved the wine problem. And got the host off the hook. And he thought of a blind beggar that no one noticed except for Jesus. And he pondered Jesus' uh, tender teachings with a Samaritan woman. And his tough encounter with a Pharisee at night. 
And with graphic detail, John takes us on a storybook journey through Jesus' encounters with people. Jesus met all kinds of people. He dined with the rich. He associated with outcasts. He had pity on the sinners. He helped the needy. At every level and every station, Jesus spoke the right words at the right time. And he addressed people in such a manner that the simple-minded could understand him. And the learned had to ponder what he said. And teaching with authority, that was new. And people came by the thousands to hear it. They were captivated by his words. According to John's gospel, Jesus didn't have to tell people they needed to repent. He engaged them in a dialogue that exposes their sins and their shortcomings and their mistakes and their failures and their thoughts. And when Jesus removes their masks, he speaks restoration instead of rebuke. He is the gentle shepherd who finds the lost sheep and brings them back into the fold. And he loves them, and they repent on their own. They could all easily be the people in your life. They could have been your neighbors or your relatives. That cranky old man who lives around the corner, he's in John's gospel. That guy at church, this church, who still can't see God, Jesus ran into a few of those. The grief-stricken widow, the pregnant teen, Your mother-in-law, you see them all in John's gospel. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The student of John will find that each time he returns to this gospel, Christ will be a little bigger. Something like Lucy's experience with the lion Aslan, the Christ's symbol in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you saw the movie came out a few years ago, and and the next one's coming out in a couple weeks. And there was a time when, uh, near the end of the book, and Lucy gazes into the large, wise face of Aslan, and he says, Welcome, child. Aslan, says Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older little one. Not because you are bigger, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And my hope is that as we've worked through uh, and worked our way through the wonders of this book, we will have found Christ to be bigger and bigger and bigger. So let's close out this amazing and wonderful book. And here we see that the last thing Peter is told is the first thing that Peter was told. Follow me. Follow Christ. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? He's referring back to the Lord's Supper there. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? He's drawing attention here to the beloved disciple. 
And it serves two purposes. The beloved disciple is, of course, the Apostle John himself. And first, the Gospel of John being virtually ended now, there's a reminder here of John's intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And it establishes his uh, credentials as the author of this account of the Lord's life and work. And second, the fact that it's Peter, remember, who had suggested to John that he asked the question as he lay on the opposite side of the Lord at the Last Supper, reminds us that Peter and John were close as well. It's natural, if not justifiable, for Peter to want to know what will become of his friend. Remember, Peter has just been told, we looked at last week, the previous verses, that he's going to die for Christ. And what's really remarkable about that is that Peter lived the rest of his life under the shadow of this prediction that Jesus had made for some 25 to 30 years. We don't know exactly. Um, Peter lived his life, and he did his work, and he uh, ministered and preached and taught and healed and prayed, knowing that someday he would be arrested and crucified. Now, that form of death is terrible enough when it overtakes you suddenly and by surprise. But Peter lived with the active prospect that he would die by crucifixion for many years. And so, since he's going to have to pay dearly for following Christ, what about John? What about John? And here in verses 22 and 23, John is correcting a false impression that the people had of him, where people thought he wouldn't die until Christ came back. And that misunderstanding probably comes from Matthew 16, where it says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So you can imagine how people could make a mistake and the consequences of that mistake. Because as John's getting older and older, and he's older than just about everybody at this point, the very few people live as old as John lived. And uh, this is another part of the argument that John wrote the gospel late in the first century when he was old. But uh, they were thinking that the second coming has to come before John's death. And if John died before Jesus came back, that would be a major blow to the Christian faith. And so John wants to correct that. He doesn't want people to panic. He knows these ideas are circulating And he actually goes out of his way to correct a false impression that people had taken of the Lord's words. And now, to be sure, there are a number of purposes served in this text we have before us today. John is reminding his readers of his credentials to write an account of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is an intimate of the Savior through his entire course of public ministry and beyond. And now he's correcting a misunderstanding. There had to be somewhat widespread in the church at the time for John to feel it important enough to put matters straight. And having given a full account of Peter's betrayal, John also gave a full account of Peter's restoration. So he's sort of wrapping things up, closing out accounts, you might say. And uh, all of these things are interesting and important, but it's a beautiful wrap-up of a believing life, both for John and for Peter, 
kind of wraps up Peter's relationship with the Lord. And he wraps up his own relationship with the Lord. And it's interesting. The very first thing Peter is told, if you go back to the beginning of the gospel, when Peter is called, he's told, follow me. And the very last words of Jesus to Peter, follow me. All that stuff that happened in between, message never changed. It's still follow me. In this case, uh, we're talking about Peter. But you know, as I think about it and as I think about Peter's life, and this could be written about any Christian's life. It could be our life. I mean, instead of writing about Peter's disgrace and fall and restoration, it could be the story of our disgrace and our shame and all of our miserable failures to live life worthy of the grace that we've received. But then there's a restoration and a sense of the Lord's love and acceptance. I think it's a beautiful thing if you remember that the Lord asked this question of Peter three times. He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answered him three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What better way is there of completely undoing what Peter had done, of wiping it off the slate, each denial matched with another confession of faith and a commission of love. And, uh, and it was also matched with this assertion on Jesus' part that Peter was not only forgiven and restored, but that his commission was still very much in force. I remember Jesus answered him and said, Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. The Lord is still quite prepared to have Peter as his servant and gives him important work to do. And again, that could be any Christian life. You know, we need as many new beginnings as we have sins. You know, is there any Christian anywhere who hasn't lived uh, part of his or her life And the strength of the promise that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. That our sins have been buried in the deepest sea and remembered no more. That our calling to serve the Lord has not at all been nullified by our many failures. And the story of how each Christian, despite our sins, despite our failures, goes on to serve the Lord by the grace of God. Peter's story is our story. And the last thing is the first thing. Follow Christ. To do that well, it becomes necessary for us to know uh, the gospel and to know this gospel in particular. Verse 24, know this gospel. It says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Although some of us are trying to get all those books. And now we've finished the Gospel of John. And I want you to take a few moments and think back over this book. Some of you have been here the whole 20 months. Some came halfway. Some have come in the last month. Think back of, over this book, the stuff that we've talked about. We came first to the 
glorious prologue with, with which this gospel opens, setting forth Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the creator of all things, who for the sake of our salvation came into the world as a true man. And we got the introductory statement for the entire gospel, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a remarkable statement. You know, people describe you, they're going to say something, what you look like. You know, Dave's short. He's got curly gray hair and he's not light. And uh, we never hear Jesus described like that. How is Jesus described? It's an amazing description, full of grace and truth. Wouldn't it be great that we get to heaven and people don't describe you by what you look like? What's he like? He's full of Jesus. What a, what a much better, greater description. You know, we get, eventually get to get rid of these old bodies. And we get new ones. And they work. It'll be great. So we're introduced to Jesus as full of grace and truth. And think we have a, a trio of sevens in this gospel. And first, we have the seven great signs or miracles that John chose to record out of all the ones that Jesus had performed. There was the changing of water to wine at the marriage feast in Cana. And you remember we talked about what a dramatic difference it made. Imagine being at that wedding and seeing that happen. And then there was the healing of the royal official son in Galilee. And the man who came, Lord, heal my son. It would be a good prayer for me today. So, some of you know Dan broke his arm Friday. The, uh, then he healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And he'd been there for years and years and years. And Jesus went up to him and he didn't immediately heal him. He said, what do you want? He said, just help me get into the water. And Jesus took pity, picked that one man out of the crowd and healed him. And then there was the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee. And then he walked on the water and he healed the man born blind. I was blind, but now I see. We've sung those words I don't know how many hundreds of times. John 9. Then he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, where were you last Friday? I was dead, buried in a tomb. What's for supper? Each of these miracles provoked controversy and conversation with the religious leadership and a confession of faith on the part of those who were witnesses. Had dramatic effects. Some believed and some got mad. Every time. And then woven among the seven signs were seven discourses or teaching, longer sections where Jesus reveals the meaning of his life and work and the true and only way of salvation. The first came 
in his dialogue with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus came to him at night and he told him, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus said, wow, how do I do that? And then a second conversation was with the woman at the well in Samaria. And he said, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, that's right. You've had many husbands. And the man you live with now is not your husband. And she became a believer and ran into town and told everybody about Jesus. And then he gave a lengthy answer to the religious leaders who complained that he was making himself out to be equal with God. And he said, you got most of it right. And then uh, fourth, he had a bread of life discourse following the feeding of the 5,000. And he said, it's really not all about the bread that you got. It's about the bread from heaven. And then there was teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem where he brought attention to what they were doing. They were lighting the lights and pouring the water and getting ready for everything. And he said, don't miss the point. All this points ahead to something else that points ahead to me. And then he had his defense of his teaching in the face of the attacks of the Jews. And then seventh, finally, his great discourse in John 10 on being the good shepherd. And then intermixed with his teaching and with his miracles are seven I am sayings by which Jesus disclosed various perspectives of who he is as the Messiah, the different ways we are to think of him. He said, I am the bread of life. So don't get caught up, you you 5,000 men, in getting fed this bread. I'm the real bread. And he said, I'm the light of the world. Don't go to the feast and light the big great candelabras and miss the significance that I'm the light. They point to me. And he said, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd and I am the resurrection and the life. You remember he asked Martha, Lord, why weren't you here? My brother died. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, and Lazarus came out. And then he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally he said, I am the true vine. And then we finished with all of the signs and the I am statements and the teaching. And we got five chapters of one night where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He's preparing them for the future and washing their feet, giving them a new commandment to love one another. He has this long teaching on the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then his great high priestly prayer. And then, as with all the other Gospels, a full account of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of the Lord, his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day and his appearance to his disciples. And then, as so much else in this Gospel that's unique to John, his account of the Lord's appearance to Thomas a week later. And then sometime after that to his disciples in Galilee. And along the way, we got some of the most memorable texts in all the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of the most precious texts to God's people. You must be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I pray I never will do a funeral without reading those words. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And there are so many other great texts. I just picked out a few. They're fixed in the heart and mind of the church and of serious Christians. And what a treasure is the gospel of John to the church. And we just read John ending his gospel, talking about himself, about what he has seen and what he has heard. He wants to impress his readers with the eyewitness authority that lies beneath this account of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just finish his gospel there. He has to mention Jesus one last time. And so he returns to Christ. And his last statement is about the immeasurable greatness of the Son of God. A greatness that his gospel, for all its eyewitness authority, has still only reflected in a limited and partial way. He says there's so much more. And John gave his life to spreading the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. And when he was an old man and not much longer for this world, he wrote that good news down for posterity so all the world might forever be able to read the greatest and most important story ever told. The Gospel of John tells us of the deeds of the one who is the living word. For John, the truth of this is demonstrated in Jesus' life. What Jesus says is always reflected in what Jesus does, and vice versa. He'll open the eyes of the blind and then speak the deep truth that he is the light of the world. He will tell his sorrowing friends that he is the resurrection and the life, and that word is validated as Lazarus comes hobbling out of the tomb. Jesus feeds 5,000 and tells us he's the bread of life. What he says is always validated and illustrated and fulfilled in what he does. For he is the word and deed of the Father. And when he speaks of light, the darkness is always there. When he speaks of being life, a dead man is nearby. When he speaks of being wisdom itself, the foolish are close at hand. And the truth is that there are days when we are the ones in darkness, when we are the ones who are foolish, and when we are dead. And we need words of light and life and wisdom. And those who are most profoundly aware of their own sin and their own need, and who, uh, as a consequence of that, most deeply feel the wonders of the grace of God that he has reached out and saved even them. Those are the ones who are most likely to talk about themselves as objects of God's love 
in Jesus Christ. Christ wants us to grow. And he wants us to grow away, to move away from our sin and our foolishness. And it's because we are the beloved, the one so loved by him, that he will change us and transform us by grace alone. Remember John, what was he called? At the beginning of the gospel, he was one of the sons of thunder. By the end of his life, he's the apostle of love. And his response isn't arrogance, it's brokenness transformed by amazement. He's overwhelmed by Jesus' love for him in the midst of his sin. We need to be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin. A shallow understanding of how much we are loved makes us weak witnesses for Christ. And we need to believe not just that the gospel is true, but that it's true for us. That's what will make us passionate believers who've been transformed by the love of Christ and who will then have that same love overflowing from us to our families, to our neighbors, to our bosses, to our students, even to those nosy people who sit near us at church. And simply put, John is aware of how great Christ was the light he brought, and the love that he had for John. In the same manner, now having read his book, are you now aware of how great Christ is and the light he brings and the love he has for you? I hope you are. Think about that. We need to pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to be ones who read your word and walk away and forget what it says. Help us to be ones who have your word deep inside, that it transforms us and changes us, that we understand that we are big sinners, but we have a great Savior. Lord, help us be overwhelmed by how much love you have for each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.